Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Book of Romans, we continue our study of the biblical teaching of sanctification as we look at the future glorification that is ours in Christ Jesus. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and join us as we continue to see how God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our theme for our study has been, and really for the whole study of Romans, is God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that that is a helpful summary of the book of Romans as we look at the power of the gospel, is the power for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And that righteousness of God, excuse me, is revealed in this gospel of Jesus Christ for unrighteous people like me and you. And that's good news. Also good news, maybe not quite on the level of God's righteousness being revealed, is that we have our map. And for those who are new, yeah, that's right, we can clap for the map. It's okay. For those who haven't been with us, this is a key feature of our, of our study. We love maps as men. And we see that Paul was writing around A.D. 56 or 57 from the city of Corinth to the community in Rome to his northwest. And he had never been to this church, but he uh, was writing to these believers to encourage them. And his words continue to encourage us today. The big picture outline of Romans and Again, for those who are new, we do have some bookmarks that you can take with you that sort of summarize our study, including this portion, is that we have uh, the gospel being, in, the gospel we, is woven throughout these words here, throughout all the different sections of Romans, and we are in the section of sanctification through the gospel. And we have been saying that sanctification is God's ongoing work of imparting His righteousness in and through the Christian, by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. So this is not us white-knuckling our way through this life, but this is God's grace imparting His righteousness to us as He transforms us to become more like Jesus. And we'll get to that in our passage today from Romans 8. As one professor once said, sanctification is taking justification seriously. It's our growth in Christ. And as we look at a breakdown of these wonderful chapters of Romans 6, 7, and 8, which feature sanctification, we are coming to the penultimate lesson in our study of sanctification with our seventh part, the future glory in Christ, as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. So you can go ahead and turn there or open up your Bible app there to Romans 8. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 30. The future glory in Christ. Now, just by way of note, I was so encouraged, as as has already been said, by by Ryan's words and how the Lord used Ryan last week to really help get us into this incredible chapter of no condemnation in Christ. Ryan, I'm, I'm grateful. I was excited I've passed that on to a few people already, and I've had others say, can you find the link so we can pass that on? So you can go to wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast, and you can find Ryan's words from last week. Um, But this great chapter of Romans has been described in some of the following ways. Uh, This is a quotation that has been attributed to a 17th, 18th century German theologian named Philip Jacob 
Spiener, if the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. Just this beautiful focus of uh, Romans being a wonderful book, chapter 8 being a wonderful highlight of that, uh, or the Bible being a wonderful book, Romans being a wonderful book within that book, and then chapter 8 being really the highlight or the apex of the whole book of Romans. Uh, Dr. Charles Trumbull, who is a longtime editor of a publication, the Sunday School Times, writes, the 8th of Romans, meaning the 8th chapter, has become peculiarly precious to me, uh, beginning with no condemnation, as Ryan talked about last week, ending with no separation, which will be next week, and in between, no defeat, which is a wonderful word of encouragement to us, Uh, especially as we'll see today when we think about the suffering and the struggle that we can experience in this life and the hope that we have. And then a final quotation, which I thought draws together theologically what's going on, uh, not just right before in chapter 7, but really this whole section beautifully, a quotation by a scholar, Everett F. Harrison, because he draws back to the very end of chapter 7, where uh, Paul essentially is saying, oh, what a wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? So he writes, it is altogether too narrow to uh, a view to see in this portion simply the antidote to the wretched state pictured in chapter 7. Actually, the chapter, this whole chapter 8, gathers up various strands of thought from the entire discussion of both justification and sanctification and ties them together with the crowning knot of glorification. That is a beautiful We'll see throughout this chapter a wonderful way, and we have seen already with what Ryan shared last week, the Holy Spirit is involved in this beautiful work of salvation for the believer. For that reason, we always want to look for key words that are repeated throughout any section of Scripture. Just in chapter 8 alone, the word Spirit is repeated 21 times. 21 times. 19 of those 21 refer to the Holy Spirit proper. This is more uses of this word and then in any other chapter in the New Testament, in the Greek language. The word hope is repeated five times, and we'll see that today. Adoption or sonship or sons is repeated four times. We also will see creation repeated four times, waiting eagerly repeated three times, and then groans are groaning repeated three times as well. So here is the big idea from Romans 8, 18 through 30, before we jump into this great passage. Bear with me here. Our future glorification will free us from our present groanifications. Okay, and yes, I I think I did make that word up. I shared that in one of our staff uh, gatherings yesterday, and someone said, is that in the dictionary? I said, it will be soon. Um, but our future glorification will free us from our present groanifications. That is, really, we will be set free from the groanings of the present through the glory of the future. Another way to say this would be, our glory will be greater than our groaning that we presently experience. Because we know life is hard. It's difficult. And sometimes it just plain sucks. But the glory that we get to experience and look forward to will be so infinitely greater, as Paul highlights that. This is a reminder, as has been discussed throughout our study, that there are different chapters of our salvation story. We look to justification in the past, then we see sanctification happening in the present. 
culminating with glorification in the future. And uh, before we get into verse 18, we just have to be reminded of what Paul had just been writing in the, the verses right before when he writes in verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see this progression. We see the themes of adoption and sonship and the spirit at work. We see suffering followed by glory. So that sets us up well as we think about this great passage from Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. And the first point that we observe as we look at verses 18 through 25 is that we can endure suffering patiently because we have hope. So let's read verses 18 through 25. As Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, friends, we can endure suffering patiently because we have hope. Another way to think about this is that fallen creation, as we see it, groans and longs for the future glory of the new creation that is to come. And Paul writes that we will experience the sufferings in this present time, in this present life. And what kind of sufferings might we experience? The suffering list goes on and on and on. In some cases, that's suffering for our faith. Certainly in the lives of the Roman Christians, there was suffering for their faith and persecution. That suffering can look like physical illness, a cancer, a disease that we experience in these bodies that are fallen and falling apart. That suffering could be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a, a relationship, the grief that comes. That suffering could be depression. That suffering could be any difficulty that we experience. But what we have to know is that we don't often think of suffering, and we don't like to think of suffering. It's not a very American virtue, I will admit. It's not something that I get excited about in my life. But nevertheless, suffering and the Christian life go hand in hand. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, these words, for this light momentary affliction, and by the way, Paul was writing this, and Paul didn't exactly have the easiest life as a follower of Jesus with shipwrecks and imprisonments and beatings and so forth. 
he refers to it as light, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. You see the, the distinction there. The groanings are, are light and momentary, but the glory is eternal and lasting and weighty. It's beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Suffering and the Christian life go hand in hand, but suffering is not the ultimate end. It's glory. Justification, sanctification, glorification. We read in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, this is the key, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the powers that enables, power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here's one of the amazing points that Paul has woven, even just into these first few verses of our section in Romans 8. Uh, that is that uh, these lowly bodies, these fallen bodies that are falling apart with sickness and pain and grief and suffering and groaning, will one day experience a transformation unlike anything we really know, where we will be glorified and be given new bodies that are finally suitable to exist in this new heavens and new earth that the Bible refers to in the future. When Jesus returns, he will um, call forth from the grave those who have died in Christ, and they will experience what is known as the resurrection from the dead. And this instant, instantaneously, momentarily, right after that, Jesus Christ will call forth from the earth those who are alive in Christ. And they too will experience a, glorific, a glorified transformation of their bodies. And some have called this the rapture. So whether it's by resurrection or rapture, as I understand the scriptures, we will all be lifted up to experience these glorified, transformed bodies that will be suitable for the new heavens and the new earth in eternity. And yet, here's what really amazes me as we read this, because Paul refers to this instance a few times in verse 19, the revealing of the sons of men. Uh, and then in verse 21, the glory of the children of God. And then again, as we see it in verse 23, uh, adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Three different times he talks about this great event when you and I in Christ, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, We'll experience a glorified transformation in a new body and remain with Jesus forever and eternity. And that's pretty good. It's going to be great. And it's going to far outweigh the groanings that we experience. But I'm amazed when I think that this particular event of our transformation, resurrection, rapture, glorification, is like the marquee focus of what is happening here. All creation looks forward to that day. All creation looks forward to that day when we are transformed. And I was thinking, why might that be that our transformation, which is all by God's grace, all by God's doing, we have very little if nothing to do with that aside from belief. Why is it that all creation will look forward to this as the marquee event of this new creation? And the only reason I can think of, I haven't delved into this deeply and maybe others have ideas to help me understand it, that when humanity first sidestepped God's ways in Genesis chapter 3, that is when not just humanity was fallen, but it began the downward spiral of corruption of all creation. The whole universe began 
moving in a direction of breaking down when man and woman decided to say, hey, you know what? God said don't eat, but it looks good, and we're going to eat. And then from that moment on, all creation has been falling apart, still within God's control, still within his sovereignty. He is still the king. He is still present. But we see a world that is at war with itself, as one professor once said. That is why we see natural disasters happening. That is why we see grief and loss all over the globe. Because all creation is groaning, and you don't have to ask uh, too many people before even those that don't even believe in, Je believe in Jesus would say, yeah, this, this world does appear to be a broken place. A lot of good is happening, but man, there is a lot of pain, a lot of evil, a lot of suffering, a lot of groaning. And all of that is because man and woman decided to say, no thanks, God, we don't trust your ways. And sin entered the world, and the whole creation has been corrupted ever since. And that is why you can reverse that to say that when man and woman, men and women in Christ are glorified and given new bodies and experience that new creation, that is that marquee event. So the downward spiral begins to be brought up and creation and redemption is able to see a beautiful new day in the future. It's fascinating to think about. It blows my mind that this would be the marquee event that all creation is looking forward to, our glorification. And it's not us. It's Jesus Christ in and through us, transforming us ultimately to bring our salvation story to a wonderful completion in him. We find that uh, a lot of the language here is, is interesting when we think about revealing in verse 19. The revealing of the sons of God, that is that Greek word apocalypsis, where we get apocalyptic. It's something that's hidden that is now made public and it is revealed. Um, that word revealing could also be like the revealing and unveiling of a beautiful statue that, that we don't know yet. The, the canvas is being covered or the, you know, the curtain is over the statue and everyone can't wait until that curtain is pulled back. And that statue or that beautiful picture is revealed and we say, ooh, ah. All creation is waiting for that ooh, ah moment. When that curtain is removed, we are glorified and the new creation will come. That is because as verse 22 says, creation is in labor pains until now. If you've seen a woman in labor, I've seen it four times with four children, you know that this is not a happy, uh, a happy event in the moment. It's painful, especially like in our, with our fourth when my wife didn't have time to get the epidural, and that was interesting. And at, at one point, my left forearm became the, lo the landing place for her fingernails when she was going through the contractions. I had faded scars for a while. They've gone now. But... Um, but in this case, what is difficult is that creation is like a woman in labor, but nothing is coming out. It's a constant pushing, groaning, contraction, all leading to nothing. It's fruitless at this time because the fruit will come later. And interestingly, not only does the creation groan, does that make sense, by the way, that the whole world almost is is just waiting for something different because the whole world is broken. Not only does the creation groan, but we groan as well. We can't wait for our own glorification. And I know on a, on a personal level, I look forward to that day. I, I hope you do too. 
where we will not experience pain or death or suffering or tears. All that will be wiped from our eye. As Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. And that's a good, good day coming. Amen? I think so. We groan. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, almost like a down payment that has been made in our life when we trust in Jesus Christ that guarantees that we will get the rest of that inheritance in the age to come. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 reads, In Him, that is in Christ also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our, your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So the first fruits, the very beginning, the very best of God's harvest in the Holy Spirit we have, we have him as a down payment. And this isn't, uh, he's not going to break that contract, by the way. We will receive what is coming. Guarantee it. Yet we groan. We groan. We groan for that day when we experience that full adoption. We have been adopted, yes, already, We have not yet experienced the full beauty of that adoption when our bodies are glorified in the future. We will experience that full promise one day. And because of this, we have hope. We have hope. Now, as Paul points out here, hope is not something that you have in the present, but hope is an eager expectation of something coming in the future. For example, many, many years ago before Christmas, I asked my parents, my dad is sitting over there, for a Swiss army knife. I was so excited. I wanted a Swiss army knife. And I went to Bob Sports in New Canaan, Connecticut, and I would hint, hey, dad, I like that Swiss army knife. And so my parents clearly knew that I wanted this Swiss army knife. And I hoped that I would get it. And on that Christmas day, when I opened that little Victorinox box, I had it. My hope was realized. And it was no longer hope. Now the hope became my parents' hope that I wouldn't injure myself with this gift. But hope is something that we eagerly anticipate in the future. And one day, our hope will be turned into reality. That's why we can endure suffering patiently, because we have hope. Something's coming, and it's going to be great. What can we look to next in the good news of this passage from Romans 8, 18 through 30? Secondly, we can endure suffering peacefully because we have help. We have hope and we have help. Help through the person of the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. Let's read verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but, and that's a strong conjunction there, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what we find here, guys, is that our groaning is satisfied by the Spirit's intercession for us with groanings of his own. We have help through the Holy Spirit. And these are so encouraging. These words are so encouraging to me. 
Uh, you see, God the Spirit is relationally and substantively one with God the Father and God the Son. This is that age-old belief of the Trinity, that doctrine and teaching of the church. We find words that Jesus himself shares about the Holy Spirit and his activity in John 14, 16 through 17, when he says, and I will ask the Father, God the Father, this is God the Son speaking, and he will give you another helper. That word helper, parakletos, is helper or advocate or comforter. That is referring to the Holy Spirit. And this helper will be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, Notice here the personal nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. So let's get that in our minds as we think and talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not like a George Lucas-created mysterious force that happens to be impersonal and out there somewhere in the world. No, the Holy Spirit is the very person of God, part of the Trinity, present in you, sealing you when you believe in Jesus Christ. And we find this wonderful way in which the Holy Spirit helps us. That word help is used only one more time in the New Testament, and that's when Jesus comes to Bethany, and he's greeted by uh, Martha, and Martha is frustrated because her sister Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and not doing anything. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Tell her to help me. The Spirit does help us. In those moments when you and I do not know what to pray, and for me, there are many, (laughs) We may be burdened or grieved or just so emotionally overwhelmed by something for ourselves or for somebody else. The Holy Spirit fills in the gaps for us and intercedes on our behalf. And he is so compassionate and gracious when he does. And I don't know when these moments might be. Maybe you find out that you have an illness or maybe you're thinking about your children. I know this morning when I walked down the hallway, I passed by my boys' rooms and I said, Lord, I don't even know what to pray for my boys. You do. I just want them to love Jesus. And and the Spirit knows and intercedes. The Spirit is likened with this word of searches the hearts, searches our hearts. This is how God searches our hearts as well. This is likened to a customs agent going through a bag at the airport, searching diligently to find something. That is how God approaches us. And ultimately, the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray or we don't even know what to say according to the will of God. And it's on our behalf. I wonder, and again, diving into this theologically, I'd have to put more thought into this, but I'm reminded how Hebrews 7.25 refers to Jesus who always lives to make intercession for us as our great, perfect priest. And I wonder what connection there might be here to the ongoing ministry of Jesus in and through us, through the Holy Spirit, who also intercedes with us. Again, a theological connection for another day. But as Tom Constable writes, we can understand this. Thus, God himself, by the Spirit, comes to our aid whenever we need help. He also assures us in his word that we will get assistance from the Father. The consequence of this promise should be that 
When we feel frustrated about our inability to pray about a particular need, we can relax. God is good. We can relax. We can have confidence that our compassionate God understands just how we feel and what we want, and he will respond according to his will. This is the good work of the Holy Spirit in in your life, in my life. That even when we don't know what to pray or what to say, he is graciously working, powerfully and graciously working in and through our lives. This is the same spirit that just before in this chapter, God says, Paul says, will provide power to raise us from the dead. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is good and will intercede for us when we do not know what to say or what to pray. Finally, what can we learn from this great passage as we conclude with uh, words that, that we have often probably read if we've been students of the New Testament? We can endure suffering positively because God's purposes are for our good. They are for our good. Noting that our good, most importantly, is that transformation of us in our fallen bodies to the new glorified bodies that we will ultimately experience. Let's read verses 28 through 30. And this is really ramping up to this great climax of Romans chapter 8 that we'll learn from next week as Ben Robertson visits with us. But verse 28 through 30 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So do you see that everything moves towards that glorification, that great revealing of the sons of men, that great adoption of sons, that great transformation of us from this old body into the new body. And this is such a theologically rich and deep portion of the New Testament. It opens the door to so many other questions about God and his sovereignty and salvation. And um, it, it can be overwhelming as we think about all of these different terms and this different progression from foreknowledge to um, predestining and so on and so forth. But I think uh, scholar C.E.B. Cranfield maybe puts it in a simple way in these verses. What is expressed is a truly biblical confidence in the sovereignty of God. That's what these verses are expressing. Biblical confidence in the sovereignty of God. However, we might choose to parse out these different words, and each of these different words are deep and rich. But we can trust that God in his sovereignty is bringing together his good plans, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our grief, even in the midst of our suffering, our groaning with evil and sin. God brings about good And notice that this good, by the way, I want to strip away, because I have to be careful in my own life, uh, what's known as a prosperity theology, which says God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy all the time. Did we not read that Paul mentioned sufferings? (laughs) Prosperity theology really doesn't talk a lot about suffering, because prosperity theology doesn't have a good category for suffering. 
But I'm thankful that the Bible does because that's real life. Our good does not primarily mean our health or our wealth and our comfort or even our situational happiness. But our good means our transformation to become more like Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what lasts. That's what's eternal. That's what goes beyond this life. And of course, we can enjoy health and wealth and happiness. We can. But let's not read that into this text. There's something much greater and much more eternal that God is referring to through Paul when he writes that he causes good in all circumstances. It's like we need to be shaped and chiseled to be more like Christ, much like a fine sculptor who takes a a rude, a crude block of marble and just begins chiseling away everything that doesn't belong in the beautiful work of art that he wants to envision. God will transform us in the same way. Scholar D. Edmund Hebert writes, He is ever at work to reproduce the moral image of Christ in us. All that now comes into our lives, he uses for our good to further that glorious goal. His aim for us now is not to make us happy, materially prosperous, or famous, but to make us Christ-like. He now uses all things, the sad as well as the glad, the painful as well as the pleasant, the things that perplex and disappoint us, as well as the things we eagerly strive and pray for to further his eternal purpose for us. In his infinite wisdom, he knows what is needed to bring about that transformation. And we see this incredible progression that is listed out here of God performing this great work of salvation. He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, and he glorifies. And that is ultimately to make us more like Jesus Christ, more and more each day. Again, the end goal of our salvation is our glorification. That is, that revealing of the sons of God, the glory of the children of God, our adoption as sons, and the redemption of our bodies. A final passage that speaks to this truth is from Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's our our, uh, positional being set apart as well as our transformation to be more like Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And guys, he is accomplishing these purposes of his will through our justification, through our sanctification, even through our groanings ultimately looking forward to our glorification in the future. So some applications as we think about our big idea that our future glorification will free us from our present groanifications. I've got groanifications, and I think you do too. Uh, And I want to give credit to Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who uh, shared a message on Romans 8 uh, one Sunday when I attended the church that he was pastoring, the Moody Church in Chicago downtown. And that's a whole other story of God's interesting sovereignty in my life. But, um, but he offers the three, these following applications, which I think are helpful. Uh, don't minimize the value of suffering. We don't like to think about it. We don't want to pursue it. But suffering has a purpose, and it has value. God is up to something good. And because of that, we can have hope. 
Don't minimize the value of our suffering. Secondly, don't minimize the value of the glory that will come. (laughs) It's going to be great. It's going to be incredible. And as Paul writes, it far outweighs the suffering that we experience now. That light momentary affliction cannot be compared to an eternal weight of glory. It's going to be be greater than anything that we can ever imagine. And all creation looks forward to that day. Finally, this blew me away. Don't minimize what God has done to save us. That beautiful story of the gospel, of us being dead in our trespasses and now being made alive through faith in Jesus Christ because that same progression of suffering leading to glory is the story of Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ first had to experience that suffering on the cross in order three days later to then experience the glory of his own resurrection in his own glorified body as the first fruits, giving us hope for what we get to look forward to one day. It has cost God much to offer us this salvation. Do not minimize it. Be grateful. And look forward to a day where we groan no more. Because God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again for our next installment in our study of the Book of Romans. Until then, know that you have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless and have a great week.